Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Asman, here with my friend in Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Megillah, daf Yud, page 10. Well, as we discussed yesterday, we're going to start on the bottom of the previous daf, uh, which is continuing this Mishnayos that are discussing the differences between this and that. And the Mishnah reads as follows. So here the Mishnah is discussing what is the difference between the Mishkan that was in Shiloh. Remember, that's where the Aaron was and where the Mishkan was before Yerushalayim was built. Um, and the actual temple um, or the tabernacle that was in Yerushalayim. And so the difference is, is that uh, in uh, Jerusalem, right? The only difference is, is that in Shiloh, one could eat what we call kachim kalim, which literally means sort of like offerings or sacrifices of le- lesser sanctity, right? So these would be sort of like individual shlemim or, or korban toda um, or the pesachim that people would bring, right? Umasr sheni And also the masr sheni, remember that's the Masr that was brought on year one, two, uh, four, uh, sorry, five, uh, yeah, four and five of the Shemitah cycle that was, that you had to take and eat in Yerushalayim. So there it was actually in, in Shiloh. So you could eat in any place where you could see Shiloh. Shiloh, one of the reasons why this is also significant for this particular parak is that um, Shiloh wasn't a walled city, right? So sort of anywhere where you could sort of see it or, you know, you you could basically sort of, and basically that means you were like within the tzachum, uh of the city, you were allowed to eat the maser, uh, the maser sheni. Um, and then finally it says, but in Jerusalem, you could only eat consecrated items within the walls itself. In other words, within the walls of the old city itself, right? Would you be allowed to eat it? And I always wonder about that because today we think about Yerushalayim and all the building of that wonderful city that's gone outside of the walls, you know, and if the third no Beit HaMikdash comes, right, would we still, even though we sort of think of Yerushalayim as sort of that greater Yerushalayim, but according to this Mishnah, all those korbanos, the Master Shani, all of those things would have to be eaten like inside the walls itself and again, the difference was with Shiloh, you just had to be able to sort of see Shiloh, but you didn't have to be inside Shiloh itself. But that was not true of Yerushalayim. The Khan Vikan, meaning Shiloh or Yerushalayim, right? The more sacred uh, korbanot, those have to be eaten uh, within the hangings, right? In other words, the courtyard in Shiloh sort of had these like, you know, the hangings, the parochet, the temple courtyard also was surrounded by a wall. Um, and that the Kudshim, the Kudshay the Kudshim uh, have to be eaten within that area, both of them. And then finally, Kedushat Shiloh Yesh Achreha Hater, right? The, 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 the sanctity of Shiloh after basically it was destroyed, right? After it no longer existed, right? They were allowed to uh, sort of, there's permission. What does heter mean? Achara heter. You could sacrifice uh, korbanos on those bamot, on improvised misbeach. Ukedusha Yerushalayim, but once we have the sanctity of Jerusalem, even after the temple is destroyed, 
There's no permission. In other words, you're actually not allowed to sacrifice uh, anything anywhere else. Now, we get into a very interesting Gemara here. I'm a Rabbi Yitzchak. And so Rabbi Yitzchak comes and he says he heard that one, uh, that there were sacrifices in the temple of Honyo in this time in Egypt. Now, what this is talking about is, is that there was a particular uh, Kohen um, who basically was forced to leave Yerushalayim. He went to Egypt, to Alexandria to be specific, and he actually... Um, started or he allowed uh, some type of a voda to happen here. And so what really this mission is discussing is, is that once the temple's been destroyed and sort of you don't have the sanctity of the temple anymore, what happens to Corbanos? Are you still allowed to bring Corbanos or can you not? So when Sheila was destroyed, you were allowed to still bring Corbanos elsewhere, right? But once you had the Beit HaMikdash and you have the sanctity of Jerusalem, the only place that it's permissible to have Corbanos is in Yerushalayim. That's what the Mishnah tells us. And then here comes along Rabbi Yitzchak and basically tells us this very interesting thing that there was sort of this temple that would took place in Egypt, um, uh, you know, where people uh, uh, where people were doing sacrifices and it looks like it was an okay thing to do. I had actually never heard of this before. I don't know, Anne, had you heard of this before? I didn't remember this part of Megillah and I've learned Megillah before. So you're going to laugh, but I actually took a class my year in Israel that was called Shiloh Yerushalayim. And it was taught by Rav Hadari, Zichron Olivercha. And, you know, it was like rapid fire Israeli Hebrew. And I was, you know, 17 years old. And I, it took me a little while to clock into what was really going on. But he literally, like literally the course went through, you know, all of the texts that pertain to Shiloh. And then compared to all of the text, uh, you know, about Yerushalayim. So in terms of a thorough investigative study, it was pretty thorough. So, um, right. And I think this tidbit about this particular Kohen is also very interesting. Um, And so therefore it goes on, right? So basically Rabbi Yitzchak thinks that this temple was not idol worship, right? It basically was really a temple to serve God. And what it also teaches is that that initial sanctity of the first temple and of Jerusalem was just for its time and it wasn't forever. And once it was destroyed, you were allowed to bring Corbanus elsewhere. And then the Gemara basically sort of cites where would he learn this halacha from? Right, so this is a passage from Devarim chapter 12, verse 9, right? For you, uh, for you are not as yet to come to rest to the inheritance, right? Minuchazo Shiloh, Nachalazo Yerushalayim, Makish Nachala Minucha. So there's a connection made between Nachala, which is Yerushalayim, and Minucha, which is Shiloh. Ma Minucha Yesh Acharehater, Ap Nachala Yesh Acharehater. Just like after Shiloh, there was permission to sacrifice you know, outside of Shiloh. So too, after you, the temple in Yerushalayim is destroyed and sort of Yerushalayim loses some of its sanctity, you should be allowed to bring Corbanus elsewhere. And that's why this temple in Egypt was allowed to happen. Now, this is the amazing part of the Gemara. Amrule. So the other sages basically say to Rabbi Yitzchak, Amarta, did you actually say this halacha? Because we all know when you read his statement, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We were allowing Corbanus outside of Yerushalayim. And so then what does he say? Amarlu, whoa. He says, no, I never said it. 
I'm a rabbi. Hello, came. He said, by God, right? Like, Amra. He's like, you know, I did hear him say this, and I learned it from him. So just a real politicians. Yeah. Like he's really like they're calling him out. And he's like, no, no, I didn't actually say this. And Rob was like, uh, I heard you say it. I have a video of it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so then the question is, OK, why did he retract? Because of a difficulty that Rav Mari raised. Demote Rav Mari, because Rav Mari said, right? Right? As we said, Shiloh has this that you could bring Korbanas afterwards. But Yerushalayim doesn't. The Otsnan, we also learned, Right? And again, now we have another Mishnah. Um, this is a Mishnah in Zbachim, actually. That once they came to Yerushalayim, these type of, you know, Bamot, these improvised altars were actually prohibited and they didn't have uh, permission to do them again. Um, and so it's interesting to see that the proof of Mari brings is basically saying to Rabbi Yitzchak, we have l- multiple Tanaitic statements that totally disagree with you. Um, and then the Gemara goes on to basically sort of say, you know, uh, you know, whether or not it's a machlok is Tanaim, whether that was true um, or, if it, or if it was not true. Um, but a really interesting Gemara that even after that Mishnah, you know, we entertain this possibility of Rabbi Yitzchak that maybe there was some sort of outside temple uh, for a very short period of time. Um, so I find this distinction or framing, as you put it, between uh, Shiloh and then what happens after Shiloh until Jerusalem and then what happens after the temple is destroyed is um, is really interesting because I feel like when Shiloh, when the Mishkan was, you know, gone from Shiloh, what happened after Shiloh is that they were able to continue, right, the same religious practice that they had, and it was kind of rendered movable, right, like transportable. And then I understand the Beta Mikdash makes it permanent, and then, but the Beta Mikdash itself is not permanent. But then, what's what's made movable and transportable? And we've talked about this with the Takanot, the decrees of Rav Yochanan and Zakkai, and so on. Rabbi Gamliel, right? The way they figured out a way to have people still like, you know, find a central authority of religion and have practice that was removed from the temple worship. Like, it's kind of like redoing the transportable religion into, you know, the closest thing as, you know, back then as compared to what we have today in terms of not having temple worship without going back to the Mishkan. Meaning, this is not yet a well-formulated, you know, developed kind of analysis, but but I feel like there's something really interesting to me about the parallels and contrast between the time outside of Shiloh and then after the the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash, where they had to kind of revamp it, like, but dramatically differently. Like they couldn't have gone back to local Bamot. They had to like change it completely because it would have been too far like too regressive or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, right. And I, you know, I think also it makes sense. I mean, there's a, the idea that sort of like Jerusalem keeps its sanctity always. Um, even the fact, I, I, I'm almost surprised the Gemara is like even willing to have entertained or admitted to this discussion at all. Like there is something very daring about it that it was even willing to commit it to the pages here. Right. Yes, I think that's true. I think that, because I think the potential for 
undercutting the very authority of the basis of religion as it came, you know, as it followed is really what's going on here, except for that it's not, meaning it, it didn't undermine it. If anything, perhaps that kind of willingness to be brave in that same way kind of makes it stronger, at least for some people. Yeah, I hear that. Okay. Okay, so I'm now going to jump down to the middle of Amabet, not the middle of Amabet, towards the beginning of Amabet. We have here the beginning, out of the beginning, the continuation of what we told you was going to happen, namely analysis of the verses of the Megillah, meaning exegetical parshanud. Let's take the verses and pull them apart. So it begins really quite simply. These words are, you know, on the face of it, really, it was in the time of Achashverosh. So that does make sense as a time to start. You're like, it's basically saying once upon a time with a little more detail even than that. But what, what the, the Gemara reads it completely differently. Amarabi, not completely, it gives it a lot more import. Amarabi Levi, Ve'itim Rabbi Yochanan, Devarze Masore Piadenu Mianchek Neset Hagadola, Kol Makom Shnemar Vaihi, I know Ella Lashon Tsar. So the Gemara statement is that it's either said in the name of Rabbi Levi or maybe Rabbi Yochanan that they have it on good authority, meaning it's a tradition that's been handed down from the people of the Great Assembly, that every time it says Vayihi, that any time in the biblical text, in the in Tanakh, that it says Vayihi, what's going to follow is a, is, a, is a term, a time of grief. It's like an ominous, you know, the, the dramatic, tense music is, is highlighting that whatever's going to follow this phrase is going to be negative. The Gemara then goes on to prove this, right? After we get told it was in the time of Achashverosh, then we know the story is of Haman, not good for the Jews. Then, another example, rather, it was in the time of, in the days of the judging of the judges, at the time of the judging of the judges, meaning the period of the judges, there was a famine. The, those words, Vahibi Mesh Fotashoftim, is the beginning of Megillah Ruth, the book of Ruth. Vahi ki hechel hadam larov, it was a time when people, when man began to multiply. This is from Breshit, Sefer Breshit, chapter six, meaning as people begin to multiply and uh, fill the earth. Vayar Hashem ki rabara ata adam. That's when God saw the weakness, wickedness of man. And then we know that the, the two next stories that happen in the Sefer Breshit, one is the story of Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Babel, where there's a fair amount of destruction that comes, although not the kind of destruction of, of death or anything like that, but it's still, you know, people are completely scattered from where they'd been. And then, of course, the story of Noah and his ark and the destruction of the entire world. So we end up there with may right again this thing of uh, it was it was or it came to pass that is then followed by something negative um I so saw one interpretation that said that the reason or as a drusha rather that the vaihi vaihi comes to mean it something negative that is heralding something negative is that the words it the word could be broken down to be vaihi vai meaning like woe like, whoa, it was, or that kind of thing. Something that there's something mournful happening in this whoa term. Practically speaking, or in a shot level, in a basic sense of the plain meaning of this term, that's not what it means. It means it came to pass. Um, it happened. But if you if you want to, you know, darshan, if you want to explicate it, this is wh- where it comes from. 
And then, they, we have more proof texts. They journeyed from the east. There's a story of Migdal Bavel. It was in the time of Amraphel. This is the war of the four kings against the five kings in the book of Breshit. And then it's a time of war. So it was it was at the time when when Yoshua was in Yericho, Jericho, the battle of Jericho. That's the story of the battle. God was with 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 Joshua, but exactly thereafter, but Israel were trespassing. It happened that there was a man from Ramataim. He at Chana Ahav Hashem Sagar Rachma. I would say that this last one in this particular list, where it says that you know it came to pass that the, there's a person in Ramataim, and then he loved Chana, but God closed up her womb, is a really different kind of negative than the kind of thing of famine and war and the flood and so on. Um, okay, we got some more examples of this. And then the Gemara says, The the recognizing of the time of the Mishkan, when the Mishkan was going to be consecrated, also begins Vahi, right? Meaning we've got other verses that begin with Vahi that do not suggest a time of grief. The Gemara says, that day, that day of the Hakamata Mishkan, of the establishment of the Mishkan on the eighth day was a day of joy and rejoicing, the same way that the creation of the heavens and the earth was a day of rejoicing. Meaning the idea is that, that you have the term vayhi, but you also have times of great joy. So then how can you claim that this term is always going to herald something negative, something ominous? So the Gemara says, well, that same day of the Shmini, of the eighth day of the establishing establishment of the Mishkan is also the day of uh, you know major distress when Nadav and Avihu die on the altar, literally on that same eighth day. And the Gemara goes on to explain that there's other cases of where Vaihi is not bad, right? So, which I, I would say, actually, you can, you know, peruse these inside. One of them is, you know, when, when Yaakov saw Rachel, right? When when the, the you know, Yaakov, the patriarch, and, and Rachel get together, right? Or even before then, right? It's the very beginning of their romance and the whole Jacob stories. And it says Vaihi, right? So that not every time is going to mean something of great grief. So we have a, a suggestion. Amar of Ashi, kol Vaihi ikahachi ve'ikahachi Vaihi bimei eino ela lashon tsar. So Rav Ashi says, when you have Vaihi, it could mean something good and it could mean something bad. Meaning Vaihi by itself is not an automatic precursor to any which kind of text. But but when it says it was in the days of that's when you know that you've got this ominous uh, for sure what's coming is going to be some kind of grief. And the Gemara gives five examples of and all of them are you know followed by negative events such as and the time of the judge's ruling and the war of the four kings and the five kings, and so on. There's a couple more.
Um, but I think that the there's, I think a lot can be gleaned from this, from these passages that goes beyond simply the question of this phrasing of vaihi or vaihi bimei. I think that Chazal's goal, Chazal's agenda here in parsing the text of the Megillah is not just to understand the text of the Megillah, right? They're using the phrases from then to say, what can that, what can we understand from, you know, for all of Tanakh? And how can we look at this as representative? And let's figure out what the, these texts mean. I think the dedication to delving into the text, even to such a phrase that sounds so innocuous upon, you know, first opening up the Megillah is, I think, part and parcel of Chazal's agenda or or overall approach to the written biblical canon. Totally agree with that. And, you know, I think even what comes afterwards with all the discussion about, um, you know, what psukim people would sort of expound upon before they started teaching Esther, I think one of the themes of this particular death is just how beautifully Chazal was able to read the psukim and that phrases that seem to us to be, like you said, sort of just, you know, kind of there by happenstance, they're willing to take each and every word linking of words together, and they really give it real meaning. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 